So we've been through the other plagues as the Lord is continuing to escalate the circumstances for the nation of Israel in the nation of Egypt, trying to propel them out the door, trying to give them freedom. The big moment is Pharaoh, and he will not give them the freedom. So you come to Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring you one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver, articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of of the people. So this work of the Lord to free them is coming to a close and they're about to be set free. But a big portion of what he's done in the process is sort of listed there at the end of that section in verse 3, where it talks about how the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Everything they've been going through, and especially what they're about to go through, it's horrific, it's terrible. You know, the Egyptians especially are suffering the brunt of all of this. And yet, there's a respect that's growing. There is a reverence for God, for Moses, for Aaron, for the people of Israel. Uh, you know, don't mess with Texas sort of attitude. You know, you lay your hands on these Israeli people and bad things happen. That's what Egypt is discovering. You, you can't trifle with them. God wants them gone. They need to be gone. Uh, you'll discover that along the way. You know, the statement the scripture gives us about touch not the Lord's anointed. We truly belong to him. And he'll certainly unleash the spankings on his own children. We do get to experience his correction and his discipline. But it's nowhere near as harsh as what an unbelieving, God-rejecting world experiences. You know, consider the book of Revelation and all that God is telling us is coming during the Great Tribulation. That's God's wrath poured out on an unbelieving people. So here, they've come to revere and respect the people of Israel, and particularly Moses. In verse 4, then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the hand mill and all the firstborn of the animals. So from the greatest to the least, you know, this statement about the hand mill is uh, simply that a young servant girl would be given the task to sit in, you know, what we might describe as the kitchen area and by hand just turn a small hand mill that ground out flour for daily use. You know, very menial task, very menial servant. So from the greatest down to the most insignificant is what the Lord is saying. The firstborn are going to die. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. You know, you jump into the middle of 
circumstances like this with an unbelieving heart, an ungodly heart, a worldly heart. You know, right now the world looks at, you know, judgment, the wrath of God, uh, punishment, plagues like this. Surely this makes God evil. Uh, you know, you have to consider that this is the people who were already killing and enslaving the nation of Israel, along with that, all of the atrocities associated with a nation that behaves like that, and then come to the place where Pharaoh has told them, now you have to kill all of your children, your, your, all of your male children. We can't let you grow as a nation anymore. We've got to wipe you out. This is the mentality of these people that God is judging. Whenever God's wrath comes upon a people, a nation, an individual, you've got to know that there's more to the circumstance. You know, we don't want to become Job's advisors, you know, sitting in the background looking at bad things happening and, you know, assume we know everything that's going on. But we also don't want to be people who start criticizing God when bad things are happening. You know, people standing around after 9-11 saying, do you think this is the judgment of God? You know, even as I say it right now, I'm sure in this room, people are going, well, I don't know. I mean, it's a touchy subject. Let me just get just straight. That was the judgment of God. And this nation did what it always does. It woke up frightened, right? Churches were full. And then everybody just immediately went back to what they were doing. We're as fragile as we've ever been. We're as vulnerable as we've ever been. And we are as rebellious as we've ever been as a people. These plagues, again, like this morning's communion message, God is trying to funnel his people back to himself. He's trying to force the mind back into a relationship with him. So here, he's going to bring this plague. There will be a great outcry, one can imagine. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast. Now you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Important from both sides of that fence. I mean, you listen to the likes of Oprah Winfrey, and she'll tell you we're all children of God. Okay, look, I can buy the idea that all of creation is his handiwork, that we're all children of God in that sense. But the scripture is very clear that there's a huge portion of humanity that has rejected God, and they are dead in their sins. You know, Paul is saying that, you know, Jesus is saying, right? But you must be born again. Why are you going to be born again? Because your spirit's dead. You're not going to have eternal life. I mean, you'll live for eternity, but it'll be dying for eternity. What a horrible thought. You know, what he's offering us is living eternity. That only comes when his spirit dwells within us. He, he's trying to force us to that recognition that there's a huge difference between you know egyptians the worldly unbelievers and believers children of god you get the attitude the understanding from certain people like oh no we're all the same we're all children of god you're not a child of god unless you're surrendering to him unless you're giving yourself over to him right you know these concepts that we've used and abused within christianity you know once saved always saved absolutely if in fact you were saved did you truly surrender? So many people want a Savior, but you know, very few want a Lord. 
someone that they answer to day to day and moment to moment, who gets to be your master. You become a servant. I'm no one's slave. You're already a slave to yourself and to your sin, to the world that is around you. You were designed by God himself to be a slave. That's why you fall to it so easily. So surrender yourself to the good master, to the good shepherd. Experience his life. So these Egyptians, they're very separate, and God wants to make a distinction between them. And look, I'll let the cat out of the bag and help you understand this. Okay, in this process of doing this, we're going to leave shortly from Egypt in this story, and what you're going to see is there's a large mixed multitude that goes with Israel. They, they, they are non-Jewish people who have seen all of this transpire and said there's something about this God. We want to worship. We want to know. We want to follow. And they go with Israel. By example, they're brought in. You know, right now there's a whole bunch of Christianity and the church that's trying to become as worldly as they possibly can so that the world will accept them. And in their mind, there, we've won them over. No, they've won, they've won you over. Through the process of compromise, you've entered into worldly living. Christ calls us to this separation. Here, there's a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. I, I think they're both angry. You know, I, I read the commentators and people want to decide, was it Moses that was angry or was it Pharaoh that was angry? I think they were both ticked off. I think it was one of those conversations. This is the last time that Moses is going to stand in, Pharaoh, in front of Pharaoh in this way and make the proclamation that there's a plague on the way. And Pharaoh is very defiant of the circumstance. I tell you what. If I know that your sin is going to produce the, ch the death of one of your children as I confront you about that, I'm going to be very angry because you're not doing anything about it. That's what's going on here is he's speaking to the one man, especially, who could have great effect on this whole nation. It's going to generate emotion in the heart and mind of everyone involved. You know, we shouldn't get the impression you know, I'm not promoting anger, but you, know, you get amongst certain people and they're so soft that anger doesn't even compel them to take action on things that they should take action on. You know, the scripture tells us, be angry and sin not. There's stuff to get mad about. You know, there, there, are, there are things, there, look, here, I'll rattle the cage a little. There are things that wives should get angry about. There are things that husbands should get angry about. You know, treating sinfulness in someone's life like, oh, that's their business. Not, not if they're your spouse. It's suddenly your whole family's business. You know, I, I deal with wrecked lives all the time. People in jail, people in rehabs. You know, watch what happens. This tolerant approach of our culture is very detrimental. So, great anger, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not 
let the children of Israel go out of his land. So uh, the uh, predictable outcome of anger and hatred that has been generated in Pharaoh, I'll touch on that again. God's not behaving any differently with Pharaoh than he is with the nation of Israel. It may be difficult to see that in the circumstance, but if Pharaoh was obeying God, then none of these things would be happening to him. So it, it isn't that you know God is hardening Pharaoh's heart in the sense that Pharaoh would really like to cooperate right here, but God keeps hardening his heart. It has you know more along the lines. The illustration I always use: the sunlight outside. You know, God is light. God is love. He, no changing or turning or shadow of turning in him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights. The sunlight outside will melt ice if you set it out there. It will also harden concrete if you pour a slab. The sun isn't any different on the concrete than it is on the ice. If we're going to surrender to Christ, that's a condition of our heart. Surrender yourself. Pharaoh can surrender himself here. And instead, because of his rebellion, the condition of his heart, God's love shining in his life is hardening his heart. It isn't that he'd like to cooperate with God, but God keeps hardening me. God is the same towards Pharaoh as he is the nation of Israel. Right? Have you have not had these conversations with people? As you try to talk to them, they're convinced God is evil or at least doing evil in their life. You know, I'm free right now. Who are you to tell me? You become a Christian. I'll just become a mindless slave. I won't be able to think for myself. You know that what God's offering them is a greater understanding of the world around them than they've ever seen before. You want them to experience the freedom and the love of Christ. To them, it looks evil. There's something in their heart that won't allow them to give in to the love of Christ. The same love you've experienced that you're expressing to them, they view somehow as being wrong and bad evil. They look at you and I, and they don't accept Christ the way that we have. So Moses did all the, these wonders before Pharaoh. Moses, hard, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of the land. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So March, April is the month of Nisan, or earlier it was referred to Abib. So if you're searching through your calendars and trying to correlate this first month, uh, Nisan is, falls over our March and April each year. So speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lambs. That becomes about 10 people to a lamb over time. They get pretty systematic about this whole thing. Uh, by the time Josephus is writing, uh, for the New Testament, uh, you know, not for the New Testament, you know, in New Testament times and for our understanding. Um, he tells us that the sacrifice of lambs 
in Israel at this time, as Jesus was going to be crucified, uh, was a slightly over 200,000 lambs that were put to death. So you're talking about 2 million people that are there to worship the Lord. Um, and uh, there are a number of things to examine in the process, but Jesus Christ's foreshadowing, the sacrifice that has been laid out, it continues on right up until Jesus' arrival as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you and your neighbor, you know, according to the account of the Lamb, your Lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall make it from the sheep or take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. How remarkable a picture that's being painted out here. As Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem on April 6, 32 AD, and the whole city is overwhelmed with his arrival and presence, and they celebrate, declaring him as the Messiah. And you'll remember that conflict between the religious leaders who want his followers to stop referring to him as you know, the son of David, savior of the world. So fulfilling that arrival, the acceptance of the Lamb of God. And then for the next four days, what are they doing? They're examining Jesus Christ, right? Uh, in particular, the way they're examining him is to try and cause him to stumble. They're, they're asking him trick questions. Uh, you know, they're asking him, why he felt like he had the authority to go in the temple and drive out all of the money changers and those that were buying and selling uh, the sacrifices that were to be made. And then the next day in John chapter 20, they come and they're questioning him about, you know, what gives you the authority to do this? And he goes, I said John 20, it was Luke 20, but he, he goes through the explanation with them of basically saying, uh, you you don't even understand spiritual authority, so why do you even have the right to question me? You know, John the Baptist, whose whose baptism was that? Was it of God or was it of man? Everybody knows that it was of God, uh, but because John referred to them as a brood of vipers who were avoiding the wrath of God, they refused John's baptism. They were offended by that confrontation, and they didn't join the movement of the Holy Spirit that was leading people to repent of their sins. And so Jesus says, since you can't determine what's of God or what's of man, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. They examine him. You know, Caesar's coin, should we pay taxes? You know, resurrection, one man died, you know, each of his brothers married. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? They're examining him. And they can't find any flaw in his behavior, in his doctrine, in his person at all. And so they just kill him. So much so that Pilate even makes that confession, telling us in the scripture that he knew Jesus was innocent and that they, the religious leaders, killed him out of jealousy. People go, well, how do we know the mind of Pilate? How do we know that was accurate? Matthew was a tax collector, worked for Rome. He was employed by them. He also was required by law to keep conversations in perfect record by using shorthand. 
you come up and start arguing with a tax collector about how much you're going to pay, he would immediately just pull out the pen and paper and begin to write verbatim what you're saying and what he's saying. That's why Matthew's context is so detailed. Because it's not just memory. A lot of these guys are drawing back, and so you get highlights of sermons, highlights of understanding. Matthew's like, oh, he's preaching. Here we go. And so you get that detailed explanation. He knows people inside the household. Matthew's the one that tells us Pilate's wife had a dream and sent a, a message to Pilate saying, don't have anything to do with that just man. How do you get that type of inside information? You got to know people. Matthew did. And that confession comes all the way to our ears, our eyes, our understanding. They knew he was the perfect lamb of God. They killed him anyway. Bring him in, keep him, examine him, and then on the 14th day of the month, the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight, just like they did Jesus. <laughs> got to quickly get him off the cross because the sun is setting, and you get the high holy day the next day, and exactly as the scriptures predicting through and through. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the house where they eat. This is the symbol of the cross painted on the doorframe. You know, the two crossbars and that center post at the top, the doorposts and the lentils. You know, some in the ancient times even referred to the whole strapping as doorposts and lentils top and bottom. So there's some thought that they actually put it on the top and put it at the bottom and on each side. The sign of the cross on their home. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't like that because they insist Jesus Christ was crucified on a straight stake. And so they actually go through great linguistic gymnastics in order to try and create an understanding of this passage that's different than ours. The symbol of the cross is what was on the door. Thousands of years, a little more than 1,500 years before anyone was even crucified. So crucifixion wasn't even a means of execution for almost 1,500 more years after this, it wasn't until you come to Jesus Christ that they've actually got that cross member cross that they're now using. Jesus' death symbolized here. So <clears throat> the blood, the doorpost, the lentils, the house where they're going to eat. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boil it in any water but roasted in fire its head with its legs and its entrails you shall let none of it remain until morning and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire they're not going to eat some of these things that were described uh, they're outside the dietary law and they have you know basic human practices that would cause them to not but they would burn it in the fire the whole thing needs to be consumed by this family is the idea. The entirety of this sacrificial lamb needs to be assimilated into their persons in some way or another. God wants them to be responsible for that. You know, Taking Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Embrace all of him. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains is shut. Of it until morning you shall burn with fire, and thus you shall eat it 
with a belt on your waist and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Uh, now, you know, there are groups within Christianity that have certain experiences, all religions really, they have certain experiences or certain things that come down and suddenly, you know, take, for example, this last statement. You know, you can easily imagine there are a group of Christians that, uh, you know, when they worship the Lord, they always wear a belt and sandals because it was listed here. Okay. The idea is that when they partake in the Passover, they should be ready to leave. Okay. It has nothing to do with belt or sandals. It has everything to do with the condition of the heart. The readiness to leave. I don't see many passages throughout the scripture that speak more clearly of the rapture than this. The church should constantly be ready. I'll say one more time. If it's going to happen mid-tribulation or post-tribulation at the end of it, then you know when that's going to happen. So therefore, what Jesus said about no man knowing the hour nor the day is false. The only way that can come to pass is if none of those things have transpired and Jesus just appears when no one can be fully expecting it. So then you have to constantly live your life with your belt and your sandals on. Do you understand the picture I'm trying to paint here? This isn't going to become the belt and sandal church. But I don't mind if you know it becomes known as the ready church. The church that is constantly living life in such a way that if Jesus Christ comes, there can't be any hesitation. Hopeful embrace of the blessed hope which we are all holding on to. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the mark has to be upon your household in order for the Passover to occur for your family. You have to bear the marks. You know, that question, very cliche, Raised a long time ago, totally fitting, no matter who we're talking about. Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you of being a Christian? There are lots of people that claim it. You know, there are people that put the plaques up on the wall. And you look at the rest of their life, and it's like a contradiction of evidence. Is there truly enough evidence in your life that under examination of court, people, you know, even if people were trying to argue, no, he or she is not a Christian. You know, you were trying to argue to save your life or I don't know what. But the evidence would be upheld and they would say, no, there's no denying it. This person is a believer. That's what's going to be on the doorposts of your house. You can post all the pictures and signs you want to, wear every Christian t-shirt, but every bumper sticker you ever saw on all your vehicles. And in the end, you won't be any more Christian than the next guy. You've got to have a heart and a mind, and a life that is surrendered. So this day shall be to you a memorial. You shall keep it 
as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. On the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat. The preparation of the meal can be done. That only may be prepared by you. So this is the sort of thing that as a nation, as a body of believers, it's their responsibility to take care of. So, you know, this is going to be prepared by you. Verse 17. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month, at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a stranger or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. So, uh, the scripture uh, throughout, uh, I've just picked uh, a few examples, but uh, throughout the scripture, the Lord uses leaven as an example of sin. And he's saying to the believers, you've got to remove this. It's going to be purged out of your life. <clears throat> now, over time, the thousands of years that pass, these people go through a process of de developing a ritual that when they do this, they actually have a game where they hide a bundle with leaven in it in the homes, and everyone's searching for leaven. And, you know, usually the adults just go to the cupboard and take it out and throw it away. and it's done. But the children in these homes would search for the hidden packet, and they would find the leaven. And there was a great celebration that they would get rid of this. So the scripture throughout, the Lord is making these parallels between leaven and sin, leaven and sin, and saying you've got to avoid having this stuff in your life. He gives us some specifics uh, regarding this. In Mark chapter 8, verse 15, Jesus charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He specifically describes that as hypocrisy. You know, uh, saying you're one thing and then living the exact opposite of what you're saying. He's saying that'll destroy your life, you know, quite obviously. Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? We do this to ourselves, do we not? We convince ourselves, I can just embrace this small thing. I mean, it's no big deal. I just, I know it's probably even a sin, but, you know, it's not horrendous. And before it's done, you realize, I've got a whole bunch of junk in my life. How did this happen? And all you can do in the end is correlate those behaviors where I opened the door to this opportunity and then all this other junk flowed in. It's not like you can look at this thing that's developed in your life over here and sometimes even make a correlation as far as, uh, you know, like 
gateway drugs, you know, gateway sins. I started with this one little thing, and it turned into all this stuff. It's not like you can associate some of these things other than the compromise opens the door. You you have something in your life that, you know, is a gray area, and you're looking over at your Christian neighbor here in church, and they participate in that, but it doesn't seem to be sinful for them, but for you somehow, and so you just compromise. Now that you have opened the door, the floodgate begins, right? Some of us have lived this out too many times to argue with it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, what area is the Lord speaking to you about? It's going to take over everything. Here's what I would get us to. Psalm 139, looking at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, my heavy thoughts, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and in contrast, lead me in the way everlasting. Giving the Lord permission to search your heart. You say, well, I've searched my heart really well, and everything's fine between me and the Lord. Maybe not. Jeremiah 17, beginning at verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his way, according to the fruit of his doings. God alone knows your heart. You don't even know your heart, right? We don't have to go a long ways into that discussion to discover the truth. You've told yourself, I'm going to move forward into this plan. Everything's going to be fine. i got to check in my heart. I don't think I should, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then it blows up in your face. And you're like, darn it. I knew this was going to happen. See, your heart deceived you. Your heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? You can't know your heart. right? When we're saying to the Lord, search me and know me, you've got to understand how vulnerable that is. God's basically saying like, oh, I know you, kid. I mean, are you sure you want to know you? Because that means there's like whole massive areas of your life that have to be overhauled. When we start getting real with the Lord, it opens up places we never expected it to. This search for leaven in their lives is something that I think the church has lost grip with. doesn't search for the leaven. There are some benefits to these rituals. You know, they're a shadow and type of Christ, but I think we've missed some of the details in the shadow. Searching out what the Lord wants us to. Look at verse 21. And Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, a bitter herb, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lentil and the two doorposts of, or excuse me, with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the doorposts, I want you to notice this family. The Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. I'm not so convinced that the Lord is the one who's moving through these countries and putting to death the firstborn. 
I'm personally, and again, I just say personally, I'm personally more convinced that Satan is happy to steal, kill, and destroy as he always does. But the Lord is here as the chaperone saying, not that house. You can't go in there. You read these occasions of Job and what he's gone through. And as Satan himself is saying, let me at him. I'll tear that guy apart. God is saying, you can only go this far. You can only go this far. You can do all of that, but you can't make him sick. You can do all of that, but you, and you can make him sick, but you can't kill him. God is constantly setting the boundary. Here, I believe that God is neither doing the killing nor allowing any beyond. He's setting the boundary for the one who wants to kill us all. You shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you. Notice that. When you come to the land, not if. Right? This is going to happen. All through the process, they're, they're constantly, they're still ever present in that place of, is this even going to happen? Right? We know the story. We know how it turns out. We go, yeah, of course it's going to happen. Ah, but if you examine your own heart, right, you've heard the promises of the Lord, and we get all frantic. Is it really going to happen? Is he going to fulfill this thing? Am I going to have the job? Am I going to get the education? Will I get the money? Am I going to have the spouse? And, and we're all tore up because we're not trusting the Lord. The Lord has declared this thing as going to take place, and it does take place. You shall observe this thing. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as I have promised, that you shall keep this service. It shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord. Now I want to pause right there on 27, and I want to challenge the parents and the children within the room. Anyone who hears this message. Two portions. One, it's the job of the parents to keep the practice. And then, when they're asked about the practice, to explain it. Ken Ham wrote a book years ago called Already Gone. And in that, they examine why do young people leave the church? Why do they leave the faith? And the perception of the church was the colleges ruined them. They leave home, they get to college, and the colleges have all of these newfangled ways of looking at things, and it destroys these young people's faith, and that's why they walk away. Sounds good. Certainly alleviates my responsibility in the picture, right? Interviewing the children that had left the faith and left those homes and families, they said, no, I was gone when I was very young, long before I left home. Leaving home just gave me the freedom to tell my parents I no longer want to participate in that. Why? Almost all of them said, because when I was a kid and I was asked questions, two things occurred. One, I was told to shut up and not ask questions. And two, then nobody explained to me anything that we believed. So going to church, 
there was a whole bunch they weren't observing, and what little bit they were observing, no one was explaining anything to them. And so there's no reason to believe this what becomes their thought at a very young age so that when they step out the door, they just finally feel the freedom to express that thought they've had all along. There's no reason to believe this. I don't believe it. And as soon as I can, I'm going to tell the whole world I don't believe any of this. Already gone puts the responsibility back on our shoulders. And the word of God never removed it from our shoulders. Continue in these practices so that when your kids ask you, you can explain. Can you explain right now the Word of God to your children? What about those tough areas? Have you spent enough time, parents, digging through them to understand why you believe what you believe so that you can explain that to the young people? Because maybe part of what's going on in our relationship is we've already said to ourselves, I don't know why we do this. I'm giving up on this. And then you got people who are cold and callous, who have no relationship with God, that are just going through the practices. It has to be with understanding. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is not, this is not a mindless faith that we have. You said no one understands these things, and it's our response. What do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Egypt, uh, children of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And it came to pass, midnight, that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt and there was not a house there where there was not one dead. Overwhelming experience. I can't even imagine what it must have been like for a whole community. Single household, horrifying enough. You know, to awaken to a whole community that is just in an absolute state of uproar over the death of the firstborn. I mean, that, I can't understand. That's really going to make the point for everyone. God means it. You've got to let these people go. Now flip the thing around for yourself this morning and understand that's how desperately the Lord wants us to experience his freedom. And you think about God looking at that circumstance and saying, I'm going to have to allow this much death to occur in order to free these, my children. Christ will let you go through absolutely terrible things in order to get to the place you need to be spiritually with him. And we often resist it. Fight against it. Re-explain it. Let the Lord say and do whatever he wants to say and do in your heart. And you'll experience along the way the freedom that comes from it. That's the deliverance we're all looking for. Is by whatever method the Lord brings into our life. Make sense? Great.
Let's stand and we'll pray. We'll pick up with the Exodus next week in verse 31. Father God, we are so grateful for your love and the way that you minister to us. I pray that you would help us to believe you and to follow you, Lord. We know this is not a mindless faith. We know, Lord, that you have given us all of these things from history that we can see and we can know have taken place. We've had our own experiences of walking with you that have shown us we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Lord, help us to cooperate. We don't want to have Pharaoh's heart at all. We want to be surrendered to you. We've learned enough about our hearts to know they are deceitful. They are wicked. Deliver us from ourselves. Help us to die to ourselves daily, to follow you in obedience, to see your will fulfilled in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.